Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is my friend, Kristen Need. Kristen is a cytotechnologist, and today on the show, we'll talk about her educational background and training in cytology. We'll talk about her work in molecular testing and about her trip to Peru while she was a cytology student. Kristen and I used to work together years ago, so it was a lot of fun to reconnect with her. All right, now here's Kristen Need. Kristen Need, thank you for talking with me tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's it's great to re- reconnect with you. It's been it's been Absolutely. too long. Yeah, it's been a very long time. <laughs> it, it sure has. We're going to talk all about uh, cytotechnology. Um, so I wanted to start with a bit about your background. Can you tell me uh, a bit of your educational background, how you became interested in cytotechnology? Yes. Um, well, actually, I grew up kind of in the med tech world. My mom is a med tech. Um, so back in the day when regulations weren't super strict, I was kind of able to go in and out of the lab with her. and. Um, I was always interested in all the little machines and everything that she had in there. So it was always very familiar to me. And I was always interested and did pretty well with uh, math and science in school. But I was actually also very interested in architecture and AutoCAD and design and model building and all that. And um, I decided to go the architecture route. And then I had a professor once who actually said that you wouldn't reach the peak of your career until you're about 55. So I decided wow. that that was not for me. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to wait that long and decided to go back into science. And my mom, who was the med tech, found the cytotechnology program through UWM, which I was already going to because they had the architecture program. And one of the years we had a introduction class to cytology and it was very brief and it kind of sparked my interest a little bit. So I actually reached out to the education coordinator there and I shadowed in their department, which was at um, a local hospital, not actually on the college campus and um, was there for the day, saw how everything worked. And I actually decided that cytology was not for me Mm -hmm. and went strong with the med tech route. And our year for clinicals was the first year that there were, I think, 12 more spots, no, 12 more students, I'm sorry, than there were clinical sites available. So the school wasn't really sure how to handle that. Um, So there were going to be quite a few students who did not get into the program and would have to wait till the next year to reapply. Uh, So I kept cytology as plan B just in case. And I ended up needing plan B. So right. now I am a cytotech and I'm glad I ended up going down that route and, um, you know, throughout the whole like education process and studying, it was really a lot more interesting than just the little tidbit we got in school, uh, for the class one day and then throughout the shadowing. Okay. So, so what is the training like to become a cytotech? Is that a, like, like how many years of, of a program is that? It is 12 months clinicals. Okay. So you, well, ours was through the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and then the actual school 
was in the cytology department or the pathology department at Aurora West Dallas in Milwaukee, which actually since has now closed. And in comparison with other cytology schools, I think ours, well, I'm biased also, but I think ours was just really well-rounded. We got GYN, pap smears, imaging that go along with it, non-GYNs, rapid on-site evaluation procedures. We got molecular we got prep education, we got um, a little bit of administrative education, and we were able to travel with it as well. But they treated us like employees. So we got there, we had to clock in, clock out by a certain time every day. We had a week mm-hmm. of vacation we were allowed to split up or use throughout the year. We had to abide by lunch rules like a normal employee. And every day, um, all the pathologists would rotate um, like a certain body site or other topic, um, along with the cytotechs that actually work down in the department. And, um, we would have PowerPoint presentations in our room and it was just me and two other students. And we would regularly have exams. So we started with GYN cause that's a lot of the field is looking at pap smears and right. then, once we got out of that, we went body site by body site for non-gynecologic studies, and that got pretty intense. But it was really interesting because our school prior to um, cytology clinicals was very heavy with anatomy and pathology. So it tied it in at a different level. Okay. Did you have a particular body site that, that was your favorite at the time? Um, I liked lung respiratory stuff because of all the different bugs you could see. Um, and in Wisconsin being in the Midwest, you could see a few more things like blasto or crypto. Um, I actually have a friend who had a brother that was on a tubing trip, uh, somewhere in Wisconsin and he ended up with blasto. So she was kind of trying to ask me about it and I was able to provide what knowledge I had, but that was interesting for me mostly. Now I wanted to get a little bit about you, you took a trip to peru to cusco peru now was this was this during the time you were a student yes so let's see it was august to august was our time in clinicals and once we got towards the summer approaching august we were pretty much done learning the bulk of everything that we needed to learn so the summer was spent traveling. Uh, we rotated to a sister hospital, St. Luke's, to see how they did their FNA service and other procedures. Uh, we were able to um, shadow a little bit for autopsy and grossing experience. Oh, really? and yes. And um, we got to go work down in the cytology room with the actual techs who were employed there already. So we rotated down there as if we were employed. So it was a choice whether or not we wanted to go on the trip or do a presentation as kind of a final project. So all three of us were very happy to take a trip. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and the class before us had already gone. So we kind of had some knowledge um, of what they went and did and things that they had to kind of troubleshoot while they were down there. But we were able to get in contact with a pathologist. Her name was Dr. Barbara Winkler, who actually just passed away recently um, from COVID complications. I saw in an email. So 
she had set us up with a travel agency that was down in Peru. Um, and we went back and forth with planning what weeks we were interested in going. And we were fundraising actually also to kind of help fund our trip, but also to buy uh, feminine hygiene supplies for all the women who were down there in a third world country who were either getting their first pap for the first time or were trying to get treatments for other issues that they've already had. So we worked pretty closely with them um, just via email and kind of hoped for the best when we got down there that it all worked out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, this was through an organization called, I'm probably going to butcher the name, Cervicusco. Cervicusco. Okay. Yep. International Cervical Cancer Foundation. Um, yes. Now, I, I, I know that organization is still in existence now. Was it mm-hmm. was it new at the time that, that you went or had it, had it been around a while? Um, I believe it was newer, the clinic that he built. Um, I believe his name was Dr. Darren Ferris. Hopefully I've got that right. But he was a physician in Georgia and started that clinic down there. And um, it also served um, medical students who were down there on a mission trip for a couple months. And it was a pretty new facility. So the first floor was clinic. And the second floor was where we would set up. And there were some bedrooms in there with bunk beds. I think the third floor was like a dorm. There was like a kitchen and all these bedrooms for all the medical students that could stay there. And there was also a dental office on another floor that was in there. Okay. And so So. what was your sort of, uh, what was your job while, while you were there? or your like main task? Uh, We were just screeners. So we um, got down there and I think the first day or the day and a half we spent trying to get all the equipment set up the right way. Um, All the microscopes were pretty much just, you know, stored there, thrown around. So we had to Mm. not only get them all working, make sure they had all their right parts. I think some of them were missing a few objectives, which one of the pathologists who came down ended up having to go to a market to find some and he found a couple 10x objectives oh, wow. um, that they just had laying around, I guess. Okay. And yeah, we had to uh, make sure everything was plugged in the right way with the right voltage adapter so we didn't blow fuses or, you know, ruin the microscopes. So that was part of the big day. But the rest of the time we were there, was more of like a eight to four, nine to five kind of deal. Um, we got up and we had our tour guide pick us up in a bus type thing um, and went around to all the hotels because we had a couple choices of where we wanted to stay hotel wise. Okay. And we all went as a group. We established who was going to be primary screeners, which was um, the Cytotech students. So myself and two others. And there were several pathologists that were there as well and then figured out who was going to do QC. And it was all SurePath. Um, BD had donated a prep machine down there with all the supplies. So we had all SurePath slides to screen and they were backlogged several months, um, but they weren't conventionals. And the year prior, I know the girls had to screen conventionals, which takes quite a bit more time. Uh So that was a nice surprise. (laughs) Right. Um, did you find it, the sort of the difference in the technology there, but as opposed to here in the U.S., was there was a kind of a culture shock in, in that respect? Yes, definitely. 
I know too, just walking down in the clinic, they, they, you know, they worked with what they had as far as sterilization and a lot of the tools were just kind of laying around or jam packed and the, however, you know, they could fit them in there. The stain lines, uh, or the histology type supplies were just kind of like haphazardly, you know, put in there, but it was also, they were also organized because they needed to wait for volunteers to come down there to work with it. So I guess, you know, each group of volunteers that came down there had to kind of go through it all and make it work for them. But I do know the year before us, the students ended up needing to get water out of the back of the toilet for their stain line. So when we were down there, they had it. Yeah. They had the BD machine. So we didn't have to really makeshift stain lines. And I know they were doing it outside as well, which brings in like outside, you know, like pollen contaminant or just open air contaminant that could get onto the slides. Uh So it was a, it was a step up or a couple steps up when we got down there at least. Okay. What about things like uh, supplies? I mean, was there anything that was hard to get or or that you ran out of? We did not run out of anything. I do know that I believe the country gives them a limit on how much xylene they can have a year, which limits how often they can process supplies. Uh Um, I think I heard that they use it as a, as a drying agent, possibly for drug production. (laughs) I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what they said. And I thought they could only have like 10 gallons a year. It was very, very small in comparison to how much we go through here in our labs. So that was absolutely limited for them, but um, everything was prepped and ready for us to get there when we were there. So we didn't have to prep anything. Okay. And I, and I believe they were probably backlogged at least three months wow. or longer. Wow. Mm-hmm. Was the clinic entirely staffed by volunteers or did they have regular staff too? They had regular local staff, but as far as treatment and screening um it was all volunteer based there was a one cytotech who worked there her name was erica um, and i believe she did some telepathology training with a pathologist from california oh so okay. they regularly they regularly got together and went over kind of interesting cases and i believe she had an ascp certification oh okay so yeah, I believe she got the, the U.S. certification. So they were already using telepathology even at that time? She was. I don't think they were routinely, but just to oh, kind okay. of get her trained, the the founder must have had a connection to try to help her learn. Did you have any like downtime or like free time while you were there in Peru could, that you could go off and, you know, see the sites or things like that? Yeah, whenever we were done for the day, we were able to do pretty much whatever we needed to um, go out to dinner together or individually um, because we worked with a travel agency the entire time. We were also able to schedule excursions with them. So our hotel was near the San Salvador market. So we were able to just walk over there. And that was pretty interesting because there's just vendors everywhere Mm. with things that they've made, um, produce just stacked high. Actually, I was just looking at my pictures because today, um, I had some like eight years ago, you were here 
memories pop up on my computer today. So I was looking at those, but the markets had, you know, different breads that they make, different uh, flowers you could buy. They actually had a meat market there and all the meat was just out in the air, room temp. <laughs> oh, so yeah, they had, um, I actually just saw a picture. They had like a, an alpaca that was the whole one ready to go. And there was, I have a picture of a German shepherd right underneath it. That was kind of eyeing it up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was definitely different to see that, uh, down there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We also, um, we were lucky enough. We had a whole day where we could go up to Machu Picchu. So we took a train there and we did a whole tour on, you know, the history and what it's all about. And we climbed one of the mountains and altitude sickness is a real thing. <laughs> you wow. will feel it very quickly. <laughs> okay. But it was, you know, it was really awesome to be able to go and see the old sites and, you know, take a train around and see different things. There are buses. To, we took a tour bus to a different market somewhere else. Um, and we were pretty much with our travel guide the whole time. So we were really able to benefit from that. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. What about like the, the language? It's Spanish speaking there, right? Yes, it is Spanish speaking. Uh, one of the places we went to with the uh, medical students, though, was a clinic where women from the mountains basically came down and they were they spoke Quechua. And they, most of them knew how to understand hearing Spanish, but they couldn't speak it. So at some point, because I had just high school level Spanish, you know, but I could read pretty well. I had uh -huh. to read them a questionnaire um, to try to explain to them, you know, you're coming to this clinic to be screened for a pap smear. A pap smear is this, and it's looking for cervical cancer. And a lot of them, once they heard, you know, the cancer word, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They, you know, they weren't too sure about it. And they would all kind of gather amongst themselves and try to decide uh, whether or not they wanted to go for their exam or not. And some of the women actually had traveled, you know, on foot or by bicycle three hours to get to this clinic and hope that they made it in time. Wow. That's yes. So very different. Yeah, than, once than we here. Got, very, very. Yes. Once we got a little more out of Cusco, which is where we were staying, um, it was definitely more third world. Very interesting to see how they live and just the different language. And yeah, it was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, so how long were you? Uh, uh, how long were you down there? In Peru, we were down there, I believe, for about a week, maybe a little more. Um, I believe we flew out of Miami. And once we got to Lima, we actually had to sleep over in the airport overnight. They didn't have late flights going out. So everybody that was there waiting for a flight in the morning, you just had to sleep on the floor at the airport. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was because it was summer in the States for us. Um, it was actually their winter. So oh, of course. That's right. That's right. We had to, um, you know, flip flop mentally pack for winter, basically in July. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah that that sounds uh, that sounds very interesting, and I'm going to uh, in the show notes for this episode, I'll I'll link to uh, Cervacusco. Um, okay. 
yeah, I was I was reading some of their website. It's it's interesting, and they I think they're doing some really good work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. All right, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Can you tell me about the? You've got some experience with molecular testing in cytology. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, in school, the only thing we did while we were in our clinicals was hybrid capture to HPV testing, which was a lot of work. It was pipetting. It was um, pipetting into plates, making up your own controls. Um, and it was an entire all day long process. So I ended up moving to North Carolina and I briefly worked uh, for a reference lab and then found a spot at a private practice and they had a Panther system. So we, it was very nice to switch over to that because it does all the pipetting for you. And we were doing chlamydia, gonorrhea, HPV, HPV genotype, and trichomonas. Um, And we ended up getting a Tomcat, which does all the pipetting from the primary container to the testing tube. So we really were completely hands-free. It even burned the barcode onto the tube for us. Wow. Yeah, very helpful, you know, preventing cross-contamination or specimen ID mix-ups. Um, but we ended up getting a second Panther, which had the fusion on it, which allows for real-time testing. Some of the things they did on there were groupie strep. The Panther fusion also had the ability to do flu testing. And then the regular Panther could also do different blood tests, but we just stuck with um, the STD testing that we would get from the pap smears. We ended up also validating our own bacterial vaginosis and candida vaginitis panel, which was very time consuming and is now FDA approved. So they just have ready to go kits, which is much nicer. But we struggled with trying to find clients who wanted that testing regularly and also where the insurance would pay for it. Some of We also did herpes as well. Um, but those last couple ones, groupie strep, BVCV and HSV, was a little bit more of a struggle to kick off with the schedule that we had and insurance companies and the type of clinics that we had and who their patients were. Okay. So it's, it sounds like you really enjoy the molecular side of cytology. Like what is it specifically that you, that you really like about it? Um, I really like that it's hands-on. I'm a very hands-on type of person. It gets you up out of your desk when you're, you know, just looking at slides all day. It just kind of gets your mind in a different direction. Uh And it really helps, I think, to correlate what you saw on the slide with the molecular results that you're getting. So I was lucky enough to be able to do my own molecular testing and not have to send it out to another lab and wait on the results. So you know, I might put a slide on my microscope and say, all right, well, I think, you know, where's the candida on here? It looks like it would be a slide that would have candida or trick or something. And then I'm able to run the test and say, oh, it's positive. So it must be here, you know, and either I've already spotted it or I can look a little harder for it. Um, The same with chlamydia or gonorrhea, you could see certain changes in there where you might look at a slide and say, well, this looks a little funny. And then all of a sudden, well, what do you know? It's chlamydia positive. And that um, is kind of, you know, confirmation that, you know, what you saw, you know, was noticeable and important. So I think that was, you know, a good different frame of mind to get into. 
Mm -hmm. Does it seem like molecular testing is becoming more, um, more widely used in cytology? Like I know in, in the, like the AP side of things, it, it definitely is expanding, especially in recent years. Is it the same in, mm -hmm. in cyto? I think so. And I think it's also just a way that cytotechs are kind of able to stay relevant with the guidelines that keep changing as far as how often uh, patients should get pap smears. And I think, I think that will be a good branch out, branch out area that cytotechs could get into to just expand their knowledge, um, especially when there's so many companies out there that are pushing for primary HPV only. Okay. You know, I, I remember when, when we worked together years ago and we had been talking about the uh, molecular like certification. Did, did, mm -hmm. you, did you ever get that? <laughs> I did not know, but I just, before all, nope, before all this COVID stuff started again, I brought my book back out because our workload was a little bit lower at work um, and we were trying to help with some other things. Uh, do a validation with a slide scanner. And that was pretty time consuming. So while we were waiting for all those slides to scan, I brought that book back out. <laughs> but now <laughs> I don't have time for that because I have a new job. <laughs> right, right. So okay. it's not dusty, though. It's not dusty. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I think mine is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the the radiology procedures that, that uh, Cytotech's mm -hmm. going and you do like an ad adequacy assessment. Uh, can you explain mm -hmm. a little bit about what that is? Yeah, um, a lot of people will also call them ROSE procedures or a rapid on-site evaluation. They're usually done in interventional radiology, ultrasound, CT. Uh, we do EBUS procedures, excuse me, in lung nodule clinic. So our pathologists at my facility right now, I'm back in hospital-based uh, practice. They only come on site for lungs and CT or they go to the EBUS. So they also are the only ones who do the adequacies. So some labs, the cytotechs will say, you know, adequate or not, and some only the pathologists do it. So where I'm at, it's only the pathologists. So any other FNA that we do or core biopsy is done in the room and then we bring it back to the lab to stain and give to them unless it's a lung. So okay. it's only specifically on site for those two specimen types. Okay. And and do you enjoy that aspect of of the job? I do, yes. It's been so long. I haven't been able to do that since I was in school either. So I had been pretty solid GYN experience for the last five years because um, we were a private practice. We didn't have hospital work mm -hmm. or non-GYN, FNAs, anything to go and visit. So it's very nice to get back into that. And I was a little worried at first. I wasn't going to remember it all, but it started to come back pretty quickly. So I feel pretty confident. Just I just finished up my first 90 days at the new job. So I'm very happy with um, everything that I've done so far. And especially in the EBUS procedures, those are very interesting. And to see all the different aspects of that and starting a new job in a hospital in, you know, lung procedures during COVID time um, was definitely interesting to see how we were going to navigate all of that. Well, how are you? How are you navigating that? Like, are there extra precautions? 
yes, lots and lots of PPE. Uh-huh. <laughs> we have our, you know, our N95, our surgical mask over that. I wear a shield. There's a bonnet, two gowns, gloves. Um, and we normally would have a microscope and a stain line already set up in the suite, but during COVID time, they put it on a cart. So it's mobile and the pathologist stays outside of, um, the suite. So they're not directly with the patient. Um, and we just kind of run slides back and forth as they're collecting them. I imagine there's been an increase in the e-bus procedures because of COVID. Have you, have you seen that? There, EBUS is relatively new to the hospital that I'm at now. Within the last two years, I think they just started those. So, but it did get pretty busy, actually. And as far as cytology went for non-GYNs during a pandemic time, we really never slowed down. So we were pretty busy. And I've uh, recently, I've almost hit my limit slide-wise. I've had, you know, 93, 98 slides. Mm. in a day. So we are pretty steady. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So if you were, if you were going to recommend the field of cytology to someone, say, you know, high school or college student, whatever, Mm -hmm. like, and they were interested in science and maybe into, you know, laboratory, what would you tell them? Like, how would you convince them that this would be the field for them? I would, well, I would, you know, recommend that shadowing really is, I think your best option it's a good, you know, look into what your future might be. Um, and to not only just shadow one place to, but to shadow other places. So I've been very lucky. I've worked in hospital-based practice, reference lab practice, private lab practice to try to really figure out what's going to be best for you and what your professional outlook is, you know, what your, what your life to pretty much look like. I think networking is super key. We were, you know, stressed network, network, network in school. And I think that really helps you get along in your career um, down the road. I've met a lot of people that have been able to connect me with others to, you know, help me get positions that I'm looking for. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of studying. And you really have to be able to be comfortable to just sit in a quiet space and Mm -hmm. just pay attention to what you're looking at. And that was actually one of the, you know, the characteristics that I didn't like of it in the first place was, you know, I don't want to sit in a quiet room all day long, you know, and have to be silent, but that's what I appreciate now is I can just go run and quiet and don't have to worry about anything else. (laughs) Okay. What do you think the, uh, the, the future of cytology is going to look like? And do you think the, the role of the cytotech, is going to expand? Uh, yes, I think non-gynecologic work will continue to be steady. And now, you know, with COVID and all the different respiratory issues you have following that, I think um, those types of specimens might increase. Um, I think molecular testing is really going to continue to expand. And not only, you know, in the types of tests you can do, but how many tests you can do on a single specimen. I think that's kind of a struggle, at least in my experience, doctors wanting, you know, a whole battery of tests on one swab on a patient and we can't necessarily do it. So I think um, types of testing is going to increase as well as how you do the testing. 
Scientology is kind of up in, well, it's up to five years, every five years now um, for a PAP. I personally feel like in the future, it might get more, it'll be, it'll go back to more frequent PAPs like it used to be. I think it's just going to take time to get there. But they, at a meeting I went to a couple years ago, they were also discussing how else can we utilize Cytotex. And they were discussing having an additional certification or a new title, like a mid-level practice practitioner. But the discussion was, you know, would it be a master's degree? Would it be just more training? Would it be a new certification you would have to get? Mm -hmm. Would you have to hold, you know, malpractice insurance? Um, And basically it would be, you would be more of an aid to the pathologist to help screen other types of cases that they would sign out. So negative urines or other cases that would have to go to them where you could sign them out as a, you know, a higher trained cytotechnologist to kind of relieve them from the load a little bit. So I think that's a little bit a ways away as well, but that is something to look forward to if you want to expand your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, you know, much like in my field, the, the future looks, uh, Mm -hmm there's going to be more work to do and it's going to be uh, expanding. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's yeah. great. All right. Well, Kristen, this, this has been very interesting. I, you know, I didn't really know a lot about cytology. So uh, this has been very educational for me. So uh, <laughs> Good. thanks a lot for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Big thanks to Kristen Need. Now, if you'd like to learn more about cytotechnology and all of the things we talked about today, Go to the website, look at the show notes, and you'll find links to everything there. And if you know someone who might be interested in cytotechnology, please share the show with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. And of course, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on Podbean. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.